I can't think of any way that I would rather begin a new year than being with this congregation. Whether it's up here preaching or just being with you in fellowship, it is such a joy to be back among us. I know we haven't been separated for all that long, but just even just being out of the regular rhythm after Christmas between now and then, it's just just good to be back. And so I'm so excited about 2020. I'm so excited to be here in 2020 with you. Let me ask you this. How did you welcome in the new year and this new decade, 2020? We did something that we've been doing for the last several years, ever since we moved to San Antonio. My wife, my son, my daughter, and I climbed up on our roof to watch the fireworks from our rooftop. Now, I don't want you to get scared, and I don't want you to be too impressed. We have a pretty low roof, and it's a pretty flat roof. It's pretty easily accessible from our backyard. But what's cool is that from up there, you really have kind of a 360-degree view of the city. And so when you go up there and all of the fireworks are going off, you can look north, south, east, and west, and you get fireworks all around. You, can, you start over here and you look and, and you see Fort Sam, and you see, turn this way and you've got, you've got the, the fireworks up in Stone Oak and then up by the medical center and then the west side and then the south side and downtown. You see them from the center city and, and you just look all around. And what's really cool is you expect that there would be just like one really big dominant firework show, but really there are lots of big firework shows going all the way around the clock. And it is fascinating. And, and it's, just, it's a really beautiful sight. But I've got to confess that, you know, as I was getting up on the roof, I started to get a little philosophical. As I climbed up onto the roof and I saw those fireworks all in the distance, I started to think about the fact that, that these, these people, these, this celebration, they, they're welcoming in the new year and these people are welcoming in the new year and they haven't talked to each other. And, and this group over here, this neighborhood is putting up its own fireworks show and this business over here and here are the fireworks at SeaWorld and here are the ones downtown and, and there are all these celebrations. And I, think about, I thought about the complexity of this city. I mean, there are people shouting Happy New Year in dozens of languages with all different kinds of backgrounds and different neighborhoods and, and different situations. And I, and I looked out and I thought, wow, there are all kinds of people celebrating this new year. I thought, you know, that's great. Some of those homes are really happy. Some of those homes are really broken. Some of those homes are really prosperous and successful. Some of them have really been left behind. There is a variety, there is a complexity in that vision, when you get up on the roof, you see that the, that the view from up there is really much different. It's much bigger than the view that I had from my backyard. You see, down all day, I'd been in my backyard with my family. We'd been doing some yard work. We'd been, we'd been grilling out. We'd been uh, pl- just playing games. It was all about our family. But when I got up on the roof, I just saw how much bigger the whole celebration, this whole new year is. And, and To play on a much overused pun these days, I started to get what you might call a 2020 vision. On the one hand is the view of my home and my backyard, of my own little world with the people that I love. And then there's that view from the roof, that broadening expanse of God's creation and people shouting Happy New Year in language after language after language. And I realized from down here in my own backyard, in my own house, the little things can seem pretty huge. But then when you get up on the roof, sometimes the huge things 
seems pretty small. From down here, all I know is what's happening to me and those close to me. But from up there, we can see how all these people and events and things are connected. And it reminded me of the importance of perspective. Now, what is perspective? Because today we're starting a new series about perspective. Perspective is the angle or position from which we view things. I mean, do we see things only from the ground level of our personal experience, or do we dare to step up on the roof and try to see things in a bigger, broader, and more elevated way? Well, the second half of the book of the prophet Isaiah is all about perspective. And our reading today comes to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. These are familiar verses, but read along as I read aloud. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. You know, the last words of that passage are so familiar and precious to this congregation because whenever our pastor emeritus lewis abendon would conclude his scripture reading he would finish with those same words the grass withers and the flower fades but you know the first time i ever preached in this congregation i ended my scripture reading with those same words and so many people came up to me after the service and said you got that from lewis To which I responded, no, I got that from Isaiah. <laughs> I think Isaiah got it from Lewis, though. So, um. <laughs> but why did the people of Israel need a message of comfort? And why do we need to hear these words at the beginning of a new decade? Well, God sent Isaiah with these words. Because Israel needed perspective. Israel was in ruins because she had become arrogant. Beginning in the 9th and the 8th centuries B.C., the nation slid into a dark time of rebellion against God. 
As is so often the case, the richer that Israel got, the more decadent it got. When worldly success is at its highest, the need for God always seems to be at its lowest, and the contempt for God is always at its strongest. The rebellion took on two forms. Rebellion against God himself and his holiness, and injustice toward one another. While continuing to pay lip service to the God who had led them out of Egypt, the Bible is filled with stories of people not only tolerating but even embracing the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth and the other pagan gods of Canaan. The religious perversity went so far that we even read that King Ahaz of Judah sacrificed his own infant son in a burnt offering to pagan gods. The second form of rebellion was an economic and political, uh, was an expression of political and economic injustice in which the people lived. As society became more and more affluent, it became more and more decadent. And the aristocracy of Israel virtually enslaved the lower classes. The evil king Ahab confiscated property and he even enslaved his own people. Dr. John Bright of Union Seminary, an Old Testament scholar, wrote this. He said, the state of Israel, externally strong, prosperous, and confident of the future, was inwardly rotten and sick past curing. Eventually, the rot that made Israel weak on the inside made her vulnerable on the outside. And in July of 587 B.C., the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon breached the walls of Jerusalem and poured into the city. They put the city to the torch, destroyed its walls, and raised the temple of God to the ground. The people were slaughtered. And those who were not put to the sword were hauled off to Babylon in chains. It was an existential holocaust. And Israel was never to stand as an independent nation again until the 20th century. The people were once again slaves in a foreign land. Here's the tragedy of it. Israel's, Israel's calamity was self-inflicted. It wasn't that God had abandoned them. They had rebelled against him. Even though God sent prophet after prophet to warn them again and again, they abused God's gifts. They took him for granted. They said that religion didn't have anything to do with politics or economics or business. They spurned their calling to be an example of light and truth and compassion and holiness to the nations and instead became just as corrupt as all the rest. They had compartmentalized God. This is the stuff of religion, and this is the stuff of our lives. And the world was upside down. How could this happen? I mean, after all, they were God's chosen people. God had made them prosperous and powerful. They were untouchable, or so they thought. And so it didn't matter what they did. God was always going to be on their side, right? But Nebuchadnezzar's battering rams shattered those illusions and their confidence, the confidence of God's people was breached beyond repair. Nothing made sense anymore. With the fall of Jerusalem, the very status of Israel's God was thrown into question. If our God can't even protect Jerusalem, perhaps 
The gods of Babylon are bigger. Perhaps the forces out there are bigger. And people started to doubt God. Is He real? Does He care? Can He even do anything at all? Is He powerful enough to make a difference? And through the tears in their eyes, they cried out for mercy. Even the best, even the most faithful were thrown into despair, wondering if God would ever forgive them, if God would ever come back. Have you ever been in a situation that seemed so dire, so desperate, so life-breaking and breathtaking that it felt like there was no way out, that you couldn't even breathe, like you'd never see the sun again, you'd never be happy again, you'd never recover. All the people could see was ruin. What a ruin their nation had become. What a ruin their lives had become. What a wreck their world had become. And so into that situation, God brings the vision of Isaiah. He brought this vision to give them a new perspective, a perspective on what they could not see. And Isaiah came in chapter 40 and says, it's time to get up on the roof. And it's time to get up on the mountain. And it's time to see who God really is. He said, go up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength and behold your God. Behold the Lord God. He comes with might and his arm rules for him. It's time to get up. It's time to lift your eyes. It's time to go up where you can see God. And the God Isaiah sees and declares is the creator of the universe. He is the God over all things in nature, from the biggest natural disasters, from volcanoes to hurricanes, weather systems, drought, earthquake, to the smallest things in nature, like viruses and cancer cells. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and weighed the mountains in scales? He is God over creation. He's God over nature. But He's also God over history. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. It is He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. It may look like these great empires of men, the Babylonians and the Persians, the Nebuchadnezzars and Cyruses of the world may control the world, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob controls them. Because he is the God over people. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. From ground level, everything they could see looked pretty bad. It looked like bad men were in control. But God had given Isaiah a vision, a new perspective. And he took the people up to the roof and he gave them a heaven's eye view of things that they could not see from ground level. He gave them a vision of a God who is still in control, who still has the power to save. But it's not just a vision of power. It's also a personal message of a father's affection. Because this is not just the God of power and creation and history. This is the God who cares. Verse 11, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. The God against whom they rebelled and abused and took for granted, in spite of all that, loves them and forgives them and cares. He's going to restore them with mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he told Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, that is her rebellion, is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here is the word of God's mercy. Here is the word of God's grace. Here is his unstoppable power expressed in terms of unquenchable love. God was saying, I know what you've been through. I know what you put yourself through. But I have never abandoned you. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, the Apostle Paul described God as the God of all comfort. Comfort like your mom or dad picking you up after a bad fall. Comfort like a policeman or a firefighter telling you that you and your family are safe. Comfort like a doctor telling you that your condition is treatable and that you're going to be okay or that your child is going to be all right. Comfort like a social worker or counselor who tells you that you don't have to sleep on the streets or, to go, or, or, or go to bed hungry tonight because we found a place for you. Comfort like telling you that you are no longer lost, but you're finally home. Comfort telling you that you are forgiven and no longer estranged. And yet this is not just the comfort that consoles and restores their security. This is the comfort that God gives to restore Israel's purpose. Dr. Bright again says this, as the Lord, as Yahweh, once called an unworthy people out of Egypt, so now he would call a blind, deaf, and utterly contumacious people out of this new bondage and accord to them his eternal covenant of grace. You know, that's why I love reading old theology. Because of the language, because of the vocabulary. How many of you have ever heard the word contumacious before? Say it with me, contumacious. You know what it means? It's an old word that means stubborn, rebellious, resistant to authority. It's a great word. It's an old legal term that refers to a defendant who's belligerent towards the judge, who stands in contempt of court. You know, I mean, think about it. How many of you ever watched Judge Judy? Yeah, I know you do, so don't lie. <laughs> a contumacious person is the defendant who yells at the judge, who who shakes his fist at her, who does all of those things and says, you have no authority over me. That is how we were. That is how the people of God were. And yet God was calling them once again to be his arm of compassion and the light of his truth to the nations. This passage is not just a history lesson. You know, when I started thinking about this sermon... And this new series, it never occurred to me that on the day that I would be preaching this first sermon, that the Babylonian and Persian empires, Iraq and Iran, 
would once again be front page news. The 2010s have been a battle for the church and for our culture. The last decade began in recession. It proceeded with marriage issues, immigration issues, opioid addiction, late-term and last-minute living abortion, church splits, race riots, environmental uncertainty, political ruthlessness, and gender confusion. It was full of mass shootings in schools, church shootings, synagogue shootings, mosques, and temple shootings. I mean, sure, there have been a tremendous number of leaps forward in medicine and technology, but in a world where rumors and lies move at the speed of Twitter, and the social media and social media can ruin lives and reputations in a breath, we need a lot more wisdom to go with our knowledge. And in a season like this, in a decade like this, one might wonder, has God abandoned his people? Has God abandoned our nation or even his church? I mean, we may not actually be in exile, but it sure feels like it sometimes. Sadly, like Israel, it's not because God left us. It's because we left God as a culture, as a nation, as families, even as the church, we have rebelled against God. We compartmentalize God. We're selfish, apathetic, defiant, contumacious. We say that God's word no longer has anything to say about politics or public morality or education or science or identity or economics or business. We are in exile. So why do we need Isaiah? Because Isaiah was on a mission to remind the people that God is still in control and God still loves us. Because Isaiah was on a mission to restore and fortify confidence in God by declaring the truth of God to people in exile, to people who are broken, to people who are lost, to people who can't figure out what happened and maybe 2019 was a good year for you or maybe your life is in ruins divorce death of someone you loved a bad diagnosis or some other disaster maybe you need to hear those two things more than anything else right now that God is still in control and God still loves you. I have a friend, a pastor from Africa, who used to say this. Instead of asking, why is this happening to me? We should be asking, what is God trying to teach me through this? God had used two great empires, the Babylonians and the Persians, to teach his own people that his holiness and his grace will not be taken for granted or his law violated. He will not forever tolerate the powerful to abuse, exploit, and manipulate the vulnerable, the sick, and the poor. It was a lesson that they had to learn the hard way. What lessons have we had to learn the hard way? What has God been teaching us in the last 10 years for the sake of his glory in the next 10 years? The challenge that Isaiah sets before us in this new decade, in the 2020s, is to declare God's power to carry people from ruin 
to restoration. When our culture is telling us, your way is lost, your faith is impotent, your God is dead, we need the comfort of Isaiah who reminds us that God is still God, that he still loves us, and that he still has a mission and a purpose for our lives. And as evidence, I offer the evidence of what's going on in this church. Five years ago, this congregation was in crisis. Stuck, fractured, fighting internally, consumed by turf wars, doctrinal confusion, and denominational politics. Even demographically, it was supposed to be the end of the line because we're an old-line, traditional center city church. But today, I look at how God is using this church to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, to model community and love to this city. He is using his people to be the instrument to draw his people from the north side, south side, east side, west side, and center city together in partnership for the poor to address housing issues, hunger issues, poverty and homelessness issues, family and foster care issues. He's using us to address mental health issues. He's restoring families. He's restoring marriages. He's restoring lives and communities and churches. Look at our heritage of mission. Look at the growth in our fellowship. Look at the partnerships we share in this city. And look at our connections around the world. In Mexico, Poland, Ukraine, Honduras, the Dominican Republic, and Indonesia. We are in partnership with both the church in Iraq and the underground church in Iran, in the lands of Babylon and Persia, the great empires of Isaiah. God is still calling us to be his arm of compassion and the light of his truth to the nations. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Isaiah's whole message reminds us that God is sovereign and that he has got us in the grip of his grace. He is the God who rules the universe. But he is also the God who came down to show us how much he loves you and how much he loves me. And we've just come through the season of Christmas. And in that season, we were reminded of other words of Isaiah where he said that one day God would be with us. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. And that one day he would become a human being. One day he would know our lives. One day he would come down into the mud and the blood and the mess and the stress of our lives to prove his love for us. We see through the book of Isaiah that the message of God's restoration is not just a cosmic message for the nations. It is also a personal message for you and a personal message for me. And he personalized it by becoming one of us. By taking on flesh. By becoming a child who became a teenager, who became a young adult, who became an adult. He lived our life so that we would know not only that he understands us, but so that we would know him in a new and different way. Isaiah bids us to come up to the rooftop so that we can see the glory and the transcendence of God. But Jesus Christ came to us to show that our God is willing to come down, that we might know him. 
And so, so whatever wreck or ruin your life may be, this message of Isaiah is for you today. Not only that God is in control, but that He loves you and that He has come, that His Son has come to prove that love and to prove His power to make a difference in your life. Because that's what this represents as we gather around His table. As we gather around this table today, we are reminded by this bread and this cup that the God of the universe took on human flesh and He took on human blood that he might prove to us that his love is real and that he wants to be involved in our lives and has the, different, has the power to make a difference in them. And so we are invited to this table to be reminded that though we are not righteous, we are forgiven. Though we are not perfect, we are loved. He comes to empower us and he comes to give us confidence and he comes to express his affection. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross to prove God's love for us. And through the resurrection, God raised him, defeating the last enemy, defeating death, to prove that he has the power to make a difference in our lives. And if he can conquer death, he can conquer any problem in our lives that we have. And so he gives us these signs, these, these things, these, these real things that we may touch and that we may smell and that we may taste to remind us that God's love and power is every bit as real as the bread that we, bring, that we put in our mouths and the cup that we bring to our lips. And so he bids you to come, to be reminded of his grace, to be reminded of this covenant that he has made, that you may feel his comfort and know that as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. And our God is the God who keeps his promises. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your invitation to this sacred table. An invitation for forgiveness, an invitation for grace, an invitation for peace. As we continue to live our lives on this upside-down earth. An invitation for eternal life with you because of your son, Jesus Christ. As we begin this new year, this new decade, we recognize that although the calendar has changed, a new decade has begun, we are still in need of your love. We are still a hurting people who need grace as we care for and love one another. We are still a broken nation who need guidance on how to honor you and serve you. We are still a lost people, lost in darkness. We're in need of great hope and the light of Christ. We know that you will intercede on our behalf through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that in the midst of ruin, you comfort us. Comfort those who are starting this new year off mourning the loss of a loved one. Who enter this new year lonely and desperate. For comfort. Bring peace to their hearts and let them cling to your promises, your promises that you always fulfill. God, we pray for protection for those who are sick, healing for those who are suffering. We know that you are in control. We know that you are bigger than this world, and we know that you are bigger than the darkest night. 
God, we pray that you continue to guide us and lead us on this earth and that we might put our trust in you, wholly trusting that you are God, acknowledging that we are not, and receiving the grace that you give us through your son, Jesus Christ. As we approach your table today, if there's anything blocking us from you or from one another, let us confess those things, coming to receive nourishment at the table, remembering Jesus, remembering Jesus' life on this earth, remembering that Jesus was human as a baby, remembering that Jesus taught and led and healed, remembering that Jesus died, remembering that Jesus was buried, but remembering that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, conquering death. Today we break this bread and share this cup, proclaiming his death for the sins of the world and his resurrection to all people until he comes again. Today we set aside these elements of the bread and the cup as symbols of Jesus' body and blood, as they remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for our forgiveness. Let us not forget, but give thanks for the reconciliation and redemption that we receive through this gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And let us be nourished here so that we might go out from these walls and share this truth with the world, with those who do not know the name of Christ. Let us be an example of Christ's love that he has for us to love one another. Give us the strength, Lord, to walk through each day obedient to you, trusting in your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.